Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 234 of Dogcast Radio, which can be found at dogcastradio.com with all our other episodes and 15 plus years of accumulated dog podcasts and more. Today, we focus on a fascinating book by behaviourist and trainer Karen London. Her latest book is called Treat Everyone Like a Dog, How a Dog Trainer's Worldview Can Improve Your Life. I guess how you feel about the idea of treating everyone like a dog depends on how you treat your dog. When Karen suggests treating people like a dog, it's no bad thing. Absolutely not. In fact, I mean it with all the kindness and respect and love that the people I tend to know personally and professionally, the way that they treat their dogs. I think that it is obviously an expression that tends to mean a bad thing. And I mean that completely ironically. I think that the way that many people in today's society treat their dogs is amazing and wonderful. And especially in the dog training community, where positive methods are all about helping the dogs and making their life wonderful and happy and teaching them in the kindest, most friendly, cheerful, happy, avoiding all negatives kind of way. And I think that's what we all want. Yeah. That's how we all want to be treated. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I often think the way I treat my dogs, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind living my life like that. And I think that's, <laughs> if you can think like that, you're getting it right. For sure. I think that a wish to come back in one's next life as the dog of someone like you who treats their dogs like the most important beings in their life is a wonderful wish and makes nothing but perfect sense to me. Good, good. Now I'm going to, I'm going to move to um, something that Patricia B. McConnell, who writes the, who has written the, uh, the foreword in your book that says about your book. And when I read this, I was like, Oh, this is powerful stuff. This is, this should be a controlled substance reading this. So she says, This is a book of perfect things, things that will make your life oh so much better by incorporating the principles of dog training into your life. Would you like your spouse to bring you flowers more often, your kids to hang up their clothes or resist the candy in the checkout line? You can, honestly, and Karen will tell you how. Influencing behavior successfully is not rocket science, but most of us didn't grow up knowing how to do it. And my goodness, I read that. Wow, we can do all this. Can we really do do that with, with, with how we treat other people? Yes. Yes, we can. The, the treating people the way we treat dogs, in, when I say we, I mean good dog trainers, Yes, we can accomplish amazing things in terms of the behavior of the people around us. And as a social species, humans are always interested in having an effect on the behavior of those around them. And sometimes that creates problems, you know, in relationships or at work or in classrooms. And as a dog trainer, my answer to so many of the issues that people have is dog trainers have solved these problems. We know how to do this. This is what we do. It's what we've been trained to do. It's what we practice doing all the time. And it's what we're forever improving upon. These, how to influence the behavior of others is well known by dog trainers because that's what we do. Yes. Yeah. And I often think when you watch a good dog behavior in action, it's like magic is happening because I've done um, some articles sort of that require a behaviorist to come out and and work with the dog and the, and the owner will say the dog won't do xyz won't come back to me won't whatever it is and the behaviorist goes yeah okay and then starts to work with the dog and the dog is so ready to do the coming back or whatever it is and you think oh, that was magic wait I didn't see the wand come out but it, it was it was magic right and I say so often it's not magic. It's just dog training, but it looks like magic because people don't know how not, you know, not everyone knows how to do it. And when someone does something that you don't know how to do, it does look like magic. And that can be everything from, you know, doing a fancy knot on a sailing vessel to solving a Rubik's cube to solving a computer tech problem. If you don't know how to do it and someone else does it, it looks like magic. And I think that as dog trainers, a lot of what we do, we can tell other people about. And I I think of the principles of dog training as something that everybody should have access to in their own personal field guide. Like, how can I do this? 
dog trainers do this. I love what they do. I like how they're able to impact behavior. How can I do that? And that's why I wrote the book. Yes. Yeah. Now, first of all, being positive is so important. I mean, I've seen this with, with our little dog, Miss Chief, who's a German Spitzklein, a bit like a Pomeranian. We have, I mean, we've always been positive with our dogs, but with her, I, I, when she was, particularly when she was little, I used to go around and Jenny used to go around with, with sort of 10 treats in our pocket and we'd just catch her being good and just give her a, a, a treat and carry on. Nothing said, no big deal, just there's a treat and carry on. And she, because they can, they can be stubborn and she is so willing to do anything. And, and with any of the four of us that live here, you can say, Miss Jeff, do you want to, and she, and whatever it is, do you want to do this? And she's like, yeah, yeah. And she doesn't even know what it is. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. And, and she's so, she's wonderful. And one of the things we did was um, with, with leave and sort of not by saying, you know, leave, but just, just offering the treat and, and, you know, um, swapping out with her and something good. And now all our dogs have, you've been able to say to them, what have you got? And they've put the thing down and gone, that's what I've got. And you can say, yeah, you can have that. Or mm, let's get you something more suitable and get them something nice. But with her, she's taken things a step further. And so you say, what have you got? And she and she willingly spits it out and looks at you like, I got that. And then she has to have a treat, <laughs> whether she has it back or not. She has to have a treat because she's like, I know the drill. And she's so willing and so cute and standing there and going, look, look, I spat it out for you. You can have it but I can have it back, but I have the treats as well. And I used to think that was, we'd got it wrong, but then now I think we've got it right because she's so happy to do it. It's just like, I know good things are going to happen. And I wish every dog had that because being positive, it does matter, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I love that you have trained your dog, not just to be able to drop something on cue. I would call that a drop at cue, but you're saying, you know, what have you got? Which, which is a really charming cue that she wants to, to, to spit it out because for her spitting out, whatever she has is a behavior that's been reinforced in the past. It it makes her happy to do it because good things happen. And that is the very definition of positive reinforcement training. And I, I mean, how many people do we know who would love to have a dog that would drop whatever they have sometimes because you're like, what, what have you got? Is it dangerous? Is it important to me? Is it valuable? Is it toxic? Uh, And I just think it's so wonderful. And she wants to do it. Like, and how much less tension you must have in your house than people that are always like, Oh, the dog has a sock. She's going to swallow it. We can't afford another vet. Oh my goodness. The dog has, Oh my gosh, that's the, the, you know, the, the box with grandma's bracelet in it or what have you. So many things. But she will now, she will go and find, for example, a, a toffee wrapper on the floor and she'll, she'll bring it in and she'll drop it. She'll go, there, I found that and I spat it out. Look, look, you have to, you have to get up out of the armchair and go and get her a treat because she's, she's done the right thing. you know. Right. Well, and this has been done with zoo animals and I, hmm. I, I regret that I don't inform, I can't remember which zoos have done this, but obviously sometimes at zoos, food wrappers and, you know, people's watches or cameras or, you know, a scarf can fall into exhibits. And there are zoos where people have trained the zoo animals to deliver them for, uh, you know, they get reinforced for delivering them and it's safe. Then they don't eat it. Then they, you know, people can get their things back if, if they're not damaged. So it's the idea of returning them. And there are definitely, I remember reading a story and I regret that again, that I don't remember the details of it, but that I think some kind of small animal, like maybe a kitten fell into some kind of primate exhibit I wish I could remember the story exactly and the and the primate turned it over and everyone's like oh it's so loving it's so caring it's like well maybe but maybe it just knows that when things fall in the exhibit that you turn them in for goodies and and how great I mean there's so many benefits to that so there's not you know trash that could be damaging to the animals and you know and then then they're gentle with the things so I mean it, you've essentially trained is it mischief is that mischief, the dog? mischief yes. that. at first I thought you were saying like miss something like you know <laughs> Miss, like you know, as Mrs. Mischief, but yeah. mischief—that's lovely. Um, you've trained trained mischief, mischief that if she delivers things to you, you, get them. And so, suppose there's like a toffee wrapper. I mean, that's good. Nobody steps in it; it gets delivered to the trash can. No other pet in your house eats it if they don't do it. I mean, it's, she's providing a good service. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She's lovely, but she's just she stands there then with her little ears up, going look, and she's so cute that she always gets the treat. So, or, or usually, and we'll come back to always or usually getting the treat. That's um, that's another really interesting one. You mentioned there zoo animals, and again, um, Patricia uh, B. McConnell mentions that because you you were her um, teaching assistant. Um, 
and you you'd done your PhD on aggression in wasps. Now, I'm frightened of um, wasps and bees, and so I haven't sort of looked into them very much. But a Facebook friend recently mentioned that her, she has a hive, and she had to swap out the queen bee because the queen bee wasn't very nice and she was producing not very nice bees and they had to get a nice queen and put the this new queen in i had never ever thought before that bees have a personality so that was like wow to me so tell me about wasps that is fascinating yes well so my specialty in graduate school is about wasps which they're a lot of similarities with bees and what's so interesting about the bees before i get to the wasps is that there are genetic lines of bees that are more aggressive than, than others. And what you want is if you're going to be a beekeeper is a pretty docile hive. It's just easier to work with. And what seems to be genetically mediated behavior and what seems to be as like the threshold for attack, like, you know, if you bump into a, a beehive, then they'll come out and, and sting you. But there, it does seem to be differences among individuals and it does tend to run in genetic family lines, like how much of a bump. So some might be, you know, a little bit of a breath in the air, a little bit of a bump and they come out and others, you'd really have to tap quite harder. So you should probably wanted a more docile hive uh, because it's easier to work with. And, mm-hmm. um, and yes, I studied the defensive behavior of tropical social wasps and there are huge differences in behavior among individuals as well as among species. So uh, I remember my advisor at the university of Wisconsin, Madison, his name is Bob Jean, brilliant scientist, really, truly a gentleman and a scholar, a fine person great researcher said that he would sometimes collect, he would do these studies where he was studying the behavior of, of the individuals in the hive. And as he was collecting them, he'd be like, Oh, they were marked with color pens. So you knew who they were like, Oh, red, blue, yellow. I remember she had, she did this, she was so hardworking or she was so persistent. And he would really talk about their individual personalities. And it's really quite common. And they're certainly in the wasp that I studied, I studied several different species, but in some of them, the, the, um, the most dominant female on the nest could sometimes be quite tyrannical and rough and harsh and aggressive with the subordinates. And some were a little more egalitarian in their behavior, perhaps more confident leaders. And that's been seen in, you know, (laughs) it's been seen in politicians. It's been (laughs) seen in gorillas. It's been seen in chimpanzees. It's been seen in wolves. You can get bully leaders and you can get confident leaders as well. So there is individual, there are individual personalities in all kinds of species. And when we think about that with our dogs, I mean, every single person we ever know that has a dog, even if you've had, you know, five Irish setters, you know, each one's different and you really do see their individual personalities. And I think it's a wonderful area of biology that in recent decades has been studied more. And I think that it affects everything. It affects their learning. It affects their interactions. It affects their courtship behavior. The individual personality is critical to everything. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Interestingly, I'm just starting work on an, an article, which I pitched kind of thing that you, you envisage and you pitch and it's commissioned. And then you go, Oh, crikey, I've got to find these people now. And I said, I'd like to write about, you know, people that have two of the same dogs or have had two of the same dogs that have very different personalities. And she went, yeah, love it. Okay, great. And I'm thinking, Oh, right. I've got to go and find these people now. So I'm in, in the process of that, hopefully enough. Um, now, one of the things is if you're nice to somebody, you know, we, we think of, you know, you know, you know, when you're being nagged, when someone's trying to, to manipulate your behavior by nagging you. And we don't really think of nagging as manipulative. But if somebody's being being positive to you to in an effort to change your behavior, somehow that, that comes can come across as manipulative. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking about um, in Big Bang Theory. Do you do you watch Big Bang Theory? Yes, when Sheldon trains yes. Penny. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> Would you like one? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So why is that though? Because surely being nice to somebody is, is much more pleasant for the person than sort of nagging them and saying, do this, do this. If you if you're rewarding the behavior, that's more more it's better for them. So why why do you think it is seen as manipulative? Well, I think, first of all, I'm so glad you brought this up because this is just a little sort of thorn in my side when I discuss positivity because there is a tendency to consider it manipulative. And I really think a lot of it is that people don't realize when you're being nice to them that you're trying to make something particular happen. But we're always trying to influence the behavior of others. And if we're doing it by nagging or punishment or, um, you know, trickiness, 
then people usually are like, oh, I see what you're doing and they're okay with that. But when you try to align what you want them to do with what they want to do, because you make it a positive experience for them to do it, it seems manipulative because people don't realize it. And I think that people tend to think of being nice and being social and being kind is just, oh, that's just interactions. But but social interactions are part of every species natural history that is social. It's what we do. And I believe a lot of the, that kindness and niceness probably evolved to make happen what you want to happen. Otherwise it wouldn't be here. So I think that the reason that people find positivity, positive reinforcement, catching them doing something right, shaping behavior to be manipulative is because people enjoy it. And so they feel like they're being duped into doing something. They don't see that it's happening. Um, but I, I just find it fascinating that nobody seems to consider punishment manipulative, and yet it's an attempt to influence future behavior. So uh, it's it's kind of a crazy thing. But I will say that if you call, if you talk about positive reinforcement, people find that manipulative. But if you talk about rewards, like, oh, the kids were rewarded because they raised so much money for the school and they get a pizza party, or somebody gets a bonus at work because they've done something, you know, made huge sales, that's not considered manipulative. But I don't really see a tremendous difference. No, no. It's as you, the the language is um, is powerful, isn't it? Now, can while we mention it, can you mention because there's positive reinforcement, but there's other things. It's classical conditioning, isn't it? So, what what are the aspects of classical conditioning that you, you can use, and some of them are more effective and better for the, the person you're using them with? So, what are they? Well, to me, classical. So, classical conditioning is pairing up stimuli in the environment in a predictable way. So a, a very common example in, in dogs is that most dogs have a strongly classically conditioned response to us picking up the leash. They feel happy about it and they know what's happening. We're going to take them for a walk. But if you just every day put a leash on your dog and then just let them walk around the house with it, they wouldn't have that response. They have that response because it predicts the walk. So that's an example of classical conditioning in dogs. Another one is if, say, you have a dog that's a little bit cautious or fearful and you have every single person that meets this dog either throw a tennis ball or give a treat, whatever they like, you're classically conditioning them to strangers and teaching them that strangers predict food or toys. So they begin to like strangers. And we can do this with people too. So, uh, and, and, and it's not like most training that we think of with dogs and with people too, where what the person or the dog does influences what happens. This is just the environment. It's just things are paired up in the environment. So say you have, um, you live with someone who is very, very grumpy on Monday morning. They hate Mondays and they complain about the coffee and they complain about having to wait for the bathroom and they complain about the noise and the weather and they're just grumpy. You could start to classically condition them to feel happier about Monday by making Monday wonderful for them. And they don't have to do anything. You're not reinforcing their behavior. You're just, you know, you get up early and start the fire. We heat with wood here. So, so that they wake up on Monday morning and the house is cozy and you cook something special like their favorite breakfast and make, you know, high quality coffee. And you make sure the newspaper is not wrinkled before they read it. They could start to be happy about Monday because these things happen on Monday. But so, so that's a very powerful way of using classical conditioning because you're, pairing up just Monday morning with good things and then making Monday morning a happier experience for them. And it doesn't have anything to do with what they do. If they're grumpy or they whine or they complain, you don't retract these good things. You keep doing them. Um, another thing is if someone's like, say, afraid of something, you pair that up with something they love. So, you know, if they're afraid of, um, you said you're afraid of wasps. If we, every time we, um, talked about wasps, you know, we gave you a bite of, I don't know, a fancy nut cake that you liked that would connect those. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go for that. Okay. Yep. <laughs> we'll, we'll try that. <laughs> it, it's really great, but it does work, doesn't it? And um, I, one of the things with, with giving treats, you know, so I, you don't hear it so much now, but um, I, you do hear people occasionally say, Oh, I don't, I don't agree with using treats. I don't, I don't like using treats. And I always think, why do, would you go to work? If they said, I don't believe in paying you. I don't think you would for very long. And sometimes people say, I don't like using treats because I'll have to use treats forever. But that's not the case, is it? You don't have to reinforce every time once they've got the behavior. And you mentioned some some research in the book about this reinforcement and the, the I like a bit of science, the, the dopamine reaction in the brain. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, first of all, and the idea of using treats all the time, um, I don't like to use treats all the time. I think that's completely unnecessary. 
some of the important value of using treats is teaching the dog, yes, that's what I want. And the early stages of training them, if they get a treat each time they do it, they start to understand, yes, oh, I see. They want me to lift my paw and wave. I get it. Or they want me to back up or, you know, wait at the door, whatever you're asking them to do. And really comparing treats consistently while they're still trying to figure out what is it that's getting me this treat that's really important and very helpful. But you certainly don't have to use it all the time. And much like with kids, like, you know, I have kids who are teenagers now, nearly adults. And when they were really little, I would say things like, oh, good job. You tied your shoes so well. Or thank you for brushing your teeth before you go to bed. Well, I never mentioned shoe tying or toothbrushing to them at this point. I mean, there's no <laughs> reinforcement. That was a gradual thing. You know, um, there was a stage when I would say it if they did it on their own or they did it really quickly or I thought they did a particularly thorough job. And really, I mean, honestly, if I said to my 15 and a half year old and my 17 year old now, thank you for brushing your teeth. Good job. They would look at me like, <laughs> You know, like, oh, geez, when do I get to go away to go to college? And so you don't have to use it all the time. It's for it's for teaching. And then occasionally for maintaining the behavior. Like I like to give treats very regularly for calling a dog to come because it's such a safety oriented thing. But the idea is that not only do we not need to use treats all the time, but there's value to not using treats all the time, to using them intermittently. And some of the research by people who study brains and their reactions to behavior is that Treats trigger reward centers in our brain. Good things, any kind of reinforcement triggers that. And that can be, you know, whether it's, you know, gambling is reinforcing to you or being outside is reinforcing to you or, you know, massage or treats or chocolate or whatever, wine, just to name a few. (laughs) A lot of the, the pleasure in the brain is actually in the anticipation of it. And the anticip that, that pleasure is particularly strong in the end, that sort of anticipatory phase. If the treat is, intermittent. If you don't know if you're going to get a treat for something, but you might, then it seems to be particularly rewarding in the pleasure centers of the brain. So having your dog on an intermittent reinforcement schedule for the behavior that you like them to do is not just a way to help them keep their you know figures and to keep you from having to have a pocket full of treats all the time and to overdoing it. It's actually helpful in part of the learning and training aspects of it because of the way our sort of magical brains work, which is pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive with the dog. For some reason you think, oh no, they need to treat every time. But then when you think about, for example, buying a lottery ticket, you might have a small win every now and then. But as you say, that anticipation of sitting down with the lottery ticket, waiting for the draw and looking at the number and think, oh, I might win. What would I spend it on? And, all this. and that, that is enough of a draw to keep us back. And occasionally you get that small win, but you keep going back and buying a ticket. But then I always think so. There's again the the um, would that be negative reward that I don't I don't win the lottery every time. No, it, you're just not getting one. It's yeah. just there's an absence of reinforcement. Yes. So, but then you know, trying to think about our training methods with with dogs or, or people. Um, if when my lottery numbers didn't come up, then some people appeared with a van and actually took a lot of my stuff away, and that's a real negative for me then I might think twice about buying the lottery ticket next time. If there's a big negative in it for me, I might not be so ready to to hand over my, my money next time or try again, would I? I definitely recommend against buying lottery tickets if the result of a non-win would be that they would come and haul yourself <laughs> away. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I think that what you're talking about, people looking at lottery tickets and that anticipation, not everyone, you know, like actually gambles and buys lottery tickets, but something a lot of people do is they check their social media, you know, Twitter or Facebook or or Instagram and, and others. And they're looking and when they look and they've got a huge response to something that is kind of, you know, it, like I always joke and say like, oh, it's a dopamine hit. Like I posted a video about these dogs greeting that was quite interesting to me ethologically for various reasons. And like a lot of other people like it. And every time I check my Instagram account and see that it's kind of like, oh, but you know, sometimes no one's said anything lately, you know, and I think that we're all experiencing this sort of intermittent response with a lot of our daily life as well. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a good, good analogy. Um, you you talk about your your children a lot in in the book, and it's and it's really nice because it does, um, you know, it puts it in the familiar world for us, and so it's really relatable. Um, one thing early on in the book that I, that I sort of related to was you you talk about de yelling at your kids and sort of when you you decided right, I'm going to be positive now, and your your son's friend sort of commented that you didn't didn't shout as sort of as his parents do and that's a really tough thing as well because I, I, as you say with our dogs I think the message is getting getting through now that we need to be positive but that doesn't always transfer to other fields of life but it is better if we can motivate our children positively as well isn't it 
Yes, definitely. And that's really uh, so important to me. And, and uh, I, I'm not someone who je- tends to say very often that I'm like proud of something I myself have done. But in the case of stopping yelling at my children, I, I do feel really good about that because it's been good for our relationship and, and it wasn't necessarily easy. And what happened to me was that my kids were quite little, you know, like kind of preschool age and we were getting ready to go somewhere. And, you know, I don't know if anyone else, like I'm sure a lot of parents who have the same thing. It's like, it's so hard to get out on time with children. Like, you know, somebody needs to use the potty and somebody is drooling and somebody, you know, forgot to brush their teeth. And, and then one morning we were getting ready and we couldn't find their shoes. And I'd been trying to get them to put their shoes in this bin. They each had a little bin um, to put their shoes in. In the morning, they weren't there. And I was yelling. I'm like, where are your shoes? Why didn't you put them in the bin? Like, and I, you know, and I'm not proud of this moment because I, I was so, you know, the sleep deprivation of being a parent and the frustration. And like I say about having very young children, there are a lot of tender moments, but the lifestyle is a bit challenging. It can be quite terrible. Yes. And, and, and I, you know, that I mean, no disrespect to my children or anyone else's children. It's just being a parent, especially of young children. And, you know, I think of the ones that are doing it right now in the pandemic without a lot of support, you know, yeah. it's really challenging. And in that case, I, I looked at my kids and they, their eyes were kind of wide and they looked kind of afraid because I was yelling at them and I was upset with them. And I have, it's just a searing memory to me. I remember thinking I would never act this way towards dogs. I was training if they hadn't done the behavior I wanted, I would figure out what it is that I needed to do to make it happen. And right then was when I realized that I, that's sort of when the the book was born in my mind, like, well, what, why don't I, why aren't I respectful as respectful and kind and loving and thoughtful to my own children who obviously I love more than anyone as I am to like the dogs I see, you know, every day, all, all the time. And so I did just stop yelling. It took me a few weeks to totally stop yelling. You know, I had to create a new habit, but I don't yell at them. And now when my kids, well, especially as they were younger, now they're, you know, they're pretty much grown up. Like I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm almost done you know, really teaching them things, um, you know, other than just almost as a peer of sorts, but uh, the way that you're, when you're raising children, you're really teaching them. And I was always like, what can I do to make this easier for them? Not, and not in that way that I think kids do need to struggle. I don't mean that, but um, like, well, okay, this is, they're not doing it. What's what there's something in the system. What can I do to set the situation up and to make it happen for them? How can I set them up for success? In dog training, we talk about like an antecedent arrangement, like a way to sort of make it happen. Um, and then well, I want to reinforce it when it does happen. And if they do something I, I don't like to think of it more like they're not being difficult, this is difficult for them. So that's the perspective. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www dogcastradio.com. And I I do think, I mean, I, of course, I don't know what my children tell their friends, but it does seem like we have a little slightly more cooperative and less tension filled sort of setup because it's not like they're doing things. And I'm like, Oh, don't do that. No wrong. Stop. You know, Um, the only time I've yelled since I stopped yelling was in emergencies, like watch out or stop, or occasionally, you know, dinner's ready. If I'm too lazy to go upstairs and tell them. So (laughs) that's a different kind of yelling. (laughs) But it is an important part of parenthood, parenthood and, and, and and building that good relationship and we think about that a lot with dogs we don't think about it enough with our children in general I, I don't think and I find it fascinating some of the things you talk about practicing with your children it's and again as with dog training it's that bit of forethought what do I want to happen here how do I set that up okay we're going to practice this and I love I mean you talk about sort of practicing because your parents didn't visit very often so you're you know particularly when your children were little you you practice that greeting but I think is is lovely but also for birthday parties when you talk about distractions and again that's it we think about distractions with our dogs we don't always think about them necessarily with our children but in the excitement of a birthday you know they don't always say thank you and remember their manners and can you can you tell us about how how you practice what you practice with your children sure well it's uh, when, you know, my, my kids, you know, like most kids, of you know, they were brought up to say thank you and be polite. And I generally had pretty good confidence in them, but I was always concerned at their party. It's so distracting. Like all your friends are there and you've got whatever theme you want going. And, you know, and then, you know, everyone usually opens presents right after they've eaten cake and ice cream. <laughs> that doesn't help behavior necessarily. Yes. And so before their birthday parties, when they were little, we would practice, we, we would, I, I, you know, feed them sugary things and have them all excited and maybe play music and just kind of make it an exciting environment. And then they'd practice opening things 
that that they didn't necessarily like, like they practice opening, you know, like a sock or a hairbrush or, you know, things that are kind of boring and um, or or a book that they already had and maybe one that they didn't even like that much. And they practice opening them in this excited state and saying like, oh, you know, thank you. Like, I'm looking forward to reading this or like, thank you. Or, you know, even things like say that they got socks for their for their birthday, which didn't happen, but suppose they did. I wanted them to have something to say, but I practice like, oh, wow, I love this color. You know, then they don't have to say, ew, socks. So I'd actually have them practice what they wanted to do in a situation that was easier than what they'd have at the birthday party, but a little harder than just in the normal setup. And I think practice, I mean, some of my very favorite clients as a dog trainer are people that understand the importance of practice. And I always think about musicians and dancers. Um, they know you have to practice and you have to practice with dog training and so much behavior that we do, you know, we practice. And I, I like to have like graduate students, uh, um, like my husband's grad students, I would often encourage them to practice answering the questions that they're very likely to get in their thesis defense or in their oral exam, like common questions, like what would be the next study that you would do? What's the most important result of your study? What's the one thing you could do differently if you did the study again? Cause those are common questions. And likely they're going to have problems answering some of the questions in their exam. And at least if they've practiced some of the likely ones, it makes it better. So, you know, I, graduate students are certainly not kids, but I feel protective of them like I do with my kids. So I want them to practice also. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And actually that, that practicing, because you talk about practicing the value of practicing with, with dogs. And I think that's so important because it's easy to think, right, taught them that, move on there. And when you think about the things that you've never actually taught the dog that they pick up on, like you, you mentioned picking up the lead and they know jolly well, you've never actually gone, look, I'm picking this lead up. We're going for a walk. You know, but when you pick your keys up, when you put your coat on, when you put your handbag up, mischief has learned that when I say, right, something's <laughs> going to happen then that I'm going to, and she's like, what, what, where, you know, and I've never, I've never paired that consciously with anything, but just the fact that it's happened again and again and again and again, they remember it. And that's a real lesson for, for our training, isn't it? Yes. I think the predictability for dogs is really important. I, I mean, some dogs predictability is crucial and extremely important, but for almost every dog, it's sort of useful. And I think people are that way. Some people really, if they're thrown off from a particular routine, they really sort of flip out and others less so, but most of us value some kind of a routine. And I think our dogs do too. And I think being aware of that can be helpful with yeah. you know, teaching our dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, another great point that you make is there's no age limit to positive, you know, being positive. You, you tend to be positive, you know, when, again, when your kids are little and, it, you know, they're just starting to walk in. Oh, yay. And you celebrate the every little tiny step. And then that tails off somehow. And I can remember when I first started um, teaching years and years and years ago, and I was 22 and um, and the head teacher would if she walked into the classroom, she'd say, that's not very good. That should be tidied up. Move that. Don't do that. And I'd be like, oh, no. When she wrote to me, you had to submit your plans in writing. And when she wrote back to me, it was all, this is great. And I love this. And you're doing so. And I was like, could you not say things to me, please? But it, it was just, I think as maybe we have a problem with, with being positive to adults that we can write it and say, yeah, that's good. But then we have a problem actually saying it. And it's so powerful when you're told when you're praised, it is so powerful, whatever our age, isn't it? Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think a lot of times, and this relates to something you asked earlier about using a treat every time, a lot of times positivity and in human interactions isn't, you know, like, here's your favorite drink, or, you know, I'm giving you a foot massage. It's social approval. Social approval is hugely important for humans. I mean, ostracism is the harshest punishment many of us can receive, you know, outside of death or something. It's really yeah. important to be socially accepted. And I do think that, especially if there's a good relationship between individuals, which most of us want with our spouses and our children and our students and, um, you know, anyone else we interact with, what we think of them means a lot. So when you say that head teacher said, like in your plans, this is good, that, that matters to you because you respected that head teacher's opinion. Likewise, when that same person comes in and was like, oh, tidy that up, that's a mess, that needs to change, what's going on there? It's quite harsh. And I, I think that it's very easy to get in the habit of being like, do that differently, change this. And it's so important to try to get in the habit of, of in, in dog training, and you use this term too, talk about catching them doing something right. Whenever there's an animal or a person 
also animals doing something right to, to point that out. And one thing I like about the way dog trainers do it is that dog trainers are often talking about shaping behavior. So you, you, you start with one sort of start of a behavior and then you're going to, by successive approximations, get exactly what you want. Much like say like a dancer, you know, you might, or a diver or a gymnast, you, you work towards getting a, a skill perfectly right, but you start with some parts of it that are right. And uh, so like when I, I tend to think something that dog trainers do a lot, and I do this, if there's a dog that's begging at your table, people are like, oh, they're begging, don't beg, stop it. And a dog trainer says, oh, this dog is doing a beautiful stay with long duration. We just want to move it across the room. So they're, they're catching them doing something right. And so often there are pieces of even behavior that you don't like that, that are, are good. And, and it, sometimes people say this, like someone comes into a meeting and they have so many ideas that it makes everyone's head spin. And, you know, at least if you can say something positive, like, I really admire your enthusiasm. <laughs> that is great. Let's focus it a little bit. Let's figure out which of these things is most important. There's always a piece of something, or I shouldn't say always, there's generally a piece of something that you can say, this is the piece of this that I like, and we're going to hone from there. And I think looking to catch people doing things right is so important. And I would like to say, um, sort of a little soapbox of mine, teenagers get such a bum deal. People are always complaining about teenagers and the behavior that they do. And I love pointing out in real life and on social media, things that teenagers do that are right, because I feel like people are very prone to criticize them. And, you know, it's not, I'm not saying everything that teenagers do is glorious and ought to be exemplified and copied by everyone else. But if we could focus on the young people in our society and say, I like what you're doing, I, that was such a good choice. I think there'd be a lot less conflict. And I'm in yeah. favor of that. I do, do not care for conflict. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, do you think that we find it hard to, to use these methods? You know, we, it's not, it's not a natural thing. It's not a thing that happens a lot. Otherwise you wouldn't have had to write the book kind of thing. But do you think we find it hard because it takes more effort from us? You know, if I'm a boss or a parent or whatever, it's easier for me to go, ah, you haven't picked your shoes up again. This towel's on the floor, whatever it is, than to put the effort in and catch you doing the right thing when you do, well done, you did hang your coat up or, oh, great, you've read this book or what, whatever it is. It takes more effort from me to, to use those methods maybe. I think it depends on what you're used to. I and mean, one of the things that's been really interesting is my book has been started to be read, read by people in the dog training community is so many people, it's resonating with so many dog trainers. And so many of them say, I've been saying this for years. Like I train dogs at home and, or, or like, you know, on, as my side job and I manage my employees this way. And, you know, and, or, you know, like a, a lot of people are saying this, I think it's a, it's a habit. And I do think that when we tend to be like, they don't do that or that's wrong. I, I feel like it's, if maybe we haven't thought through how we could get the behavior that we want. And to put it in dog training terms, many times you see someone trying to get their dog in the car and the, the dog doesn't want to come in. Maybe the dog's frightened or the dog's upset or the dog, it hurts the dog to jump or who knows what, but the dog does not want to jump or go somewhere. And people are pulling at it and they're yanking like, come on, you know, come on, fight, let's go. And I always think if they had a way to do that, where they were like, okay, hop up, here you go, or do it happily, they would do that. I feel like they, we tend to be negative when we don't have, a way, a plan, or like a habit of doing it in a kinder way. And in, in dog training, we often say that force is the absence of real power or, you know, force happens and frustration happens when knowledge ends, you know, yeah. like when you're not sure how to do it in a way that's good, we resort to these other things. I think a lot of the negativity and frustration um, that's in our actions, it comes from a way like does come from frustration of, of not having a way to, to do it. I think like, I think of this, like, teacher, school teacher, I'll be like, okay, everybody sit down. And if all their students, you know, obey that suggestion or cue or command and sit down, then they'd never be like, sit down, everyone. <laughs> I feel like it's a last resort yes. to a lot of people. And I think some people have felt become, come to feel so powerless in the kind and gentle ways because of however they're doing it, whether it's their interactions or relationship with the people or their skills at teaching and training, it's not happening. They've just resorted to like, well, the only way to get things done is, is this. And the sad thing is that can be quite reinforcing. Like when I was yelling at my kids about like, where are your shoes? Like, you know, they like went running and looked for them. Like it got the behavior to happen, which, you know, not, not the behavior of putting their bins away, but it got them to go look for their shoes, which is what I needed was for them to have their shoes on. So that can be reinforcing. In that case, it was not reinforcing me because I was so distraught and upset by the distress I caused. But sometimes when we're negative and we yell or we're harsh, people do respond, but at what cost it's out of fear or, um, anxiety, or it's not, you know, in a positive relationship light. So it's very complex behavior, because there are a lot of reasons that we do the things we do. 
Yeah. Some yeah. of them, you know, helpful and some not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You you put it into perspective, you put it into to um you describe situations very, very effectively that show us you know, give, give, give us an insight into what the dog might be thinking or what the person might be thinking when we aren't, when we aren't employing these positive um, methods. And you mentioned um, a dog trainer friend, Laura Monaco, who was learning. Uh, Laura Ita- Monaco Torelli. Yes, Laura Monaco Torelli. She's a brilliant dog trainer and a wonderful friend. Yeah. And she was learning Italian. Can you tell us about her experience of learning Italian? Oh, sure. So, um, you know, and she Italian background, you know, and her dogs have names like Vito and Santino and her cat is Topolino and I forget the other one. But she was working with an Italian tutor instructor who was saying like, no, you have to do it like this, say it like that. And she just began to shut down, you know, like it was like, basically, she, she says that she felt like this is, she thought this is what a stressed animal feels like. She was just afraid to do anything. And on her next trip to Italy, where she went for some dog training work, she was very quiet at dinner. And her friends who are dog trainers were sort of confused about that. And, and because she's very vivacious and gregarious and, and ch- tends to be talkative. And she was saying she, she just didn't want to risk miscommunication. And she was nervous about, you know, talking Italian and she didn't, without a translator, she didn't want to cause them trouble. And one of them said something to one of the others in Italian and they all laughed and they're like, we'll help you. Like, you know, the only way to, to, to learn Italian is to speak Italian. Like you do it. You're safe with us. And it's just like such a, they were dog trainers, such a safe response, like present the behavior. We'll catch what's right. And we'll help you do better. And, uh, and then she, you know, began to, you know, then she, I think her Italian's quite good. And she was, you know, then speaking Italian, uh, you know, at this dinner and you know, not like a native. I mean, she's, you know, she's from Chicago, you know, she lives in Chicago, <laughs> you know, she's not an, an Italian uh, by birth, but uh, the way that those people treated her is just how any proper dog trainers would treat any dog like you're you're welcome to present behavior you don't have to worry that behavior will be faced with punishment because her instructor was punishing her every time she spoke italian she was punished yeah and criticism that's wrong and say it like this no not like that mm. you know, Laura monica torelli is also um i didn't mention her name in this section of the book although now i wish i had it um she was the one that talks about just the positivity of instead of saying kill two birds with one stone she's the one that i first heard the expression feed two birds with one seed, which she heard from a trainer um, years ago. Yeah. It, it, uh, you know, funny enough, um, Jenny, my daughter has pulled me up on that one and said, no, 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 it's two birds and one seed. And then we decided it was, well, we'd have to have two seeds or maybe two bags of seeds <laughs> to give them a fair. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a just, you know, and uh, it's easy to think, well, it doesn't matter about the word used, but it does because it just it becomes ingrained in your thinking and, and that way of, of approaching things. So I think that does, that is a lovely saying. Um, and another um, example you use is when you watch American Idol and the voice and the different approaches you see there, and it shows on the, the competitors uh, faces. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, on the, on American Idol, and I know that I don't watch it anymore, but they've since changed their format, but in the early years they had judges and that's what the judges did. They judged them. The, contestants sang and the judges judged them and the, and the contestants always sort of had this stricken look like you know like <gasps> you know <laughs> um you know very nervous sort of look as they were um about to be addressed by the judges and in, in on the voice they have coaches they're on their team they're helping them be better and after those contestants perform they have sort of a look of anticipation like what have you got for me like what what you know what was pleasing and what can I do better? And it is amazing the difference. And again, American Idol has changed its format some and, you know, had, um, I think become more positive to change with the times. But I think the idea of just sort of basically the contestants on American Idol, basically it was like they were slapped on the wrist, like whoop, bad, you know, bad contestant. And on the voice, they were being helped. And it's so different. I mean, just the entire experience is so different. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when your dog turns to you with that, happy expectant look that's what you want isn't it when they go what are we going to do now what's next what's that you know instead of what's in that you know you don't want fear you don't want that fearful what's going to happen you want that exciting what's going to happen that's what we want isn't it totally and I love it when I'm working with the dog and you know I've asked them to do something or I'm letting them present behavior and they kind of look at you and I could imagine if they had a cartoon bubble over their head it would say like did I do it right did I do it yes. right did I do good um, and I think that when people train with more coercive techniques and not, I'm not even talking about really cruel inhumane horrible things but just you know kind of a no or even just you know gentle you know like gentle negativity which is still negative but I do distinguish that from like true cruelty oh yes yeah 
the, the dogs, a lot of those dogs, people think, oh, they trained them so well, but really they've trained them to just basically move towards the catatonic. So they just don't do anything because any behavior they present presents a risk of, of, a, of a negative response, some kind of punishment. And they just sort of, they may quote be well-behaved, but it's not that they're behaving well. They're just sort of not behaving. They're just sitting there. They're not doing anything. And they tend to shut down, which is, we you know what I talked about with Laura in the Italian lesson, um, just refusing to speak or not refusing, but deciding not to speak Italian because it led to bad things for her previously. And I think a lot of, I mean, we do want our dogs to look up in happy anticipation and, you know, if they didn't get it right, then they didn't get it right. And you just move on and they have another chance to, you know, yeah, yeah. do it right. Absolutely. Absolutely. On, on the subject of no, apart from all the things about, you know, you, you can use a harsh tone of voice and it can be damaging, but which is, which is obviously very, very bad. But if, if, you sit there for the evening and you're not paying very much attention to the dog and then they start doing something wrong. They've perhaps been doing, you know, neutral or, or good behavior up till then. And then they start to chew your slipper or whatever it is. And it's uh, no. And that's the first attention you've paid them for say half an hour. That's, that's reinforcement in itself, isn't it? Oh, I get attention when I chew your slipper then. Okay. So we, if we can move to these positive methods, um, it's much, much better training, more effective, isn't it? Definitely. And in the situation with that slipper, it is kind of tricky because, you know, you might really need to get your slipper away. What I would, what I would do in that situation is I would, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't probably be saying no, I would just trade that out for something they can chew on. Cause I would take it as, okay, they're telling me they need something to do. Maybe chewing is what they feel like doing right now, or maybe a walk, but I would, you know, make sure that they had something better to do more appropriate. And what I would think of as terms of working on that behavior is in the future, not having my slipper around when they are in the slightly bored state when we've been being calm. So lots of times in that immediate situation, yeah, they might get attention for chewing your slipper, but you then in the future, make sure that slipper is not there for them to chew it as a way to get their attention. Uh, it is a tricky kind of cycle because sometimes people say, well, what are you supposed to do? Just ignore it and let them chew your slipper. Well, no, because that's not good for them or your slipper. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So many times it's just a little bit of thought, a little bit of managing the 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 um, environment. Absolutely. And, yeah. Planning and managing the environment is so important. And uh, really, we want to set our dogs up for sort of the path of least resistance. We want to make what we don't want them to do really difficult for them to do. And we want to make what we do want them to do easy for them to do. Yeah. So we, we try to guide their path while they're learning to sort of create the path and make the choices themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great book. I've I've really enjoyed it. And I, I in the past, I I've joked sometimes and got, you know said, oh yes, positive methods, ha ha, not with husbands, ha ha ha. But obviously, it's you get a more harmonious relationship if you can use more more uh, positive uh, methods with all the people in your in your life. So I think this is a great book. And I think you know if, if people use it and and use those methods, they will have better relationships. And and certainly they'll 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 be happier, and the people around them will be happier. We've, we've talked for a long time and thank you ever so much for your time. Is there anything else that we haven't, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things we haven't covered, but is there anything else that you're, you really like to tell people? Well, I guess there's one thing that I think is so important that I've taken from the world of dog training that I like to apply in my interactions with people. And that is that it's always easier to learn and it's always easier to change behavior if it's fun. And I think that making training and learning fun or even making it a game is so important. And you were just mentioning about, you know, husbands and wives and, you know, there's no reason not to use these same methods. I know that my kids and my husband use them on me. They, <laughs> they, you know, they've lived with me. They've learned from me. We're all naturally a bit this way and it makes sense. And, you know, just one example of just making it fun and it can be so simple is that I had a friend whose husband never put his dirty laundry in the, in the basket. And she was, very frustrated by that. And she asked me for help and she was hoping to use positive reinforcement, which is obviously a huge component of treating people the way we treat dogs in a positive way. But I said, you know, I would just make it a game. He loves basketball, put a basketball hoop over the laundry basket and then, you know, he'll throw it in. And it was a problem solved so quickly without a lot of, you know, big, long training. And, and the best part for me, which I didn't anticipate was that he is a pretty good shot. He does play basketball. And if he ever missed, he would certainly never leave it there. So like the clothes were always in the bin and just so simply making something fun. He didn't want to pick up his clothes, which seemed like a chore to him, but just making it where he shoots it through the basket made all the difference. So making things fun is something that we do with dogs a lot. And I think that transferring that idea to people is so powerful and so beneficial. 
Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. It's, it's marvellous. But it's it's powerful stuff. So I do think it, <laughs> it could come with a warning. <laughs> it does work. It does work. Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, well, I write for The Bark magazine. I blog for them online. Um, and then I guess my I, um, I'm on Instagram at Karen London Dog Behavior. And those are the two places I think where I'm the most active online. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. And I'm really glad that you like the book. I love the book. Having seen The Power of Positivity with Dog and Indeed Animal Training, I can appreciate it's just as powerful with humans. But are people more challenging to work with? They can be annoying. They make comments and ask questions. But then our dogs have their own agenda too. They want us to feed them, walk them, let them out for toilet breaks, and maybe up onto our couches and beds. So... Is the truth that our dogs are so good at using positive training with us that we perceive them as easier than most people? Hmm. Or is that just me? I'd love to know what your take on this is. But there's no positive way to say this. That's it for this time. But hey, we'll be back soon with more great canine content and poochy podcasts. Sorry, I think I need a coffee. Anyway, until next time... Look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident dogcast radio that's all one word dogcast radio by email you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com when contacting us by email if you have the facilities please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file that way we can include them directly in our program we can accept most formats for example wav mp3 All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. Why do dogs like conjunctions? They just love butts.